0: So right on. Hey, we're, we're coming back to First John. We were here two weeks ago. Did you guys enjoy last week, by the way? Wasn't that great to have Clarence Jansen here and just really enjoy that? I was asked, actually, if we had that recorded, and we do. It's not quite up on the website, but it will be this week, the second session as well. So if you missed the second session and you wanted to catch it, um, we'll have the audio of that. It would have been good to have video, too, but... Uh, just for all the stuff he was showing us. But it was awesome. Great time. And uh, so it's good to come back to John. We just kicked into 1 John the week before. And we've only looked at the first four verses. And so this morning I just want to um, back us up a touch. So that we get our bearings again. Because what John told us was very important. For where this conversation is going to go. And where he's going to take it. And to me it's like, oh man. This one's, it's it's not an easy text in some ways. It's really tough but it's tender at the same time and it's a great text it's challenging and so it says this let's read the first four verses 1st John chapter 1 that which was from the beginning which we have heard uh, sorry which we have heard which we have seen with our eyes which we have looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life the life was made manifest and we have seen it and testify to it and proclaim to you eternal life which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. Verse 3, That which we have seen and heard we proclaim also to you, so that you may have fellowship with us. And indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things so that your joy or our joy may be complete. So let's remember some of the things that we talked about two weeks ago and what we've just read here. Some of the things that John is telling us. He tells us this. He begins at the beginning. Okay, remember we said this almost reflects Genesis chapter one and the gospel of John chapter one. And John begins with the beginning with the eternal God who is before all things. And he told us that this God was physically manifested and that others HIMSELF AND OTHERS COULD TESTIFY TO THIS AS EYEWITNESSES. THEY HAD SEEN HIM, THEY HAD TOUCHED HIM, THEY HAD HEARD HIM, THEY HAD GAZED UPON HIM OVER A PERIOD OF YEARS. AND JOHN TELLS US HERE THAT THIS GOD IS THE WORD OF LIFE, THIS GOD THAT HE'S TALKING ABOUT. AND HE TOLD US THAT THIS GOD IS DISTINCT AND DIFFERENT FROM THE PERSON OF GOD THE FATHER. And he he told us this, that that we may have fellowship with this God and that often we are introduced into fellowship with this God through fellowship with other people that serve him through the body of Christ. He also told us this, that that this eternally existent God, the word of life, who was physically present with the disciples, physically present on earth, is, is God the Son, the eternal Son, named Jesus Christ. Remember we talked about this, that Jesus was the perfect integration between the spiritual and the physical. And so John tells us this, that, that our fellowship is with Jesus, as followers of him. Our fellowship is with him, and it leads to fellowship with other people, and it leads to joy. Fellowship in him leads to joy in our lives. And so, In the first four verses, I mean, uh, John really gives you enough information about faith in Jesus and Christian life that, well, Andy said to me something this morning, like, you can spend your whole life right on this text right here. And so John says this, you know, John wants us to know Uh, That we have eternal life. He wants us to know where eternal life is. And so the first lesson he taught in this message about Jesus and about eternal life is this. Where is eternal life found? And he told us eternal life is found in a person. It's in Jesus. And Jesus wants to give us eternal life. And the second lesson is this. That Jesus desires to integrate his life into our life. That we would experience relationship with him. And the word that John uses to describe this integration is fellowship. That we would have fellowship with him. And so Jesus is the perfect integration of the spiritual and the physical. The God man. The God who took on human flesh. And now Jesus desires to do this. He desires to integrate himself spiritually into our physical life. Into our physical life. And so the goal is fellowship. That's the word we use to describe what he's. That's what John talks about here. Fellowship. And fellowship remember it means this. It means to have in common. And so it's, it's through faith in Jesus that I've received eternal life. That you receive eternal life. And if through faith in Jesus you've received eternal life. And I have received eternal life. Then we have something in common together. We have Fellowship. And we have it in common together with Jesus. And we have it in common together with each other. And so as we enter into this relationship with Jesus, the result is, is fellowship and eternal life. And the blood of Jesus, we're going to read, cleanses us from all sins. Now John is going to take this whole discussion further because th- the message that he has came from God and he's, he, he believes the Lord has called him To proclaim this message because he wants to help us deal with any contradiction in our life. That's what God wants to do. God wants to deal with the things that are are causing problems in this fellowship relationship. The things that are causing problems in the integrating of spiritual life with physical life. Now, we talked about the Gnostics. Remember we talked about that? It was a group of false teachers that were around during Sean's, John's day and they were they were separating the physical life, your physical life from your spiritual life. Say, so your sin, you do in your body, your spirit, you live unto God. It doesn't really matter. Remember I, I, I gave you the trick question? Do you remember the trick question? I said, who has a secular job? And a bunch of you raised your hands. You, you bit, man, you bit. And... and and the point was this no everything is being integrated in our relationship with Jesus there is no sacred and secular it's Jesus in all things. And so John says this this is the message he's been given to this church and for us verse 5. This is the message that we have heard from him and proclaimed to you that God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. This is the message John says, this is, I'm going to speak, it." he says, I'm going I'm to, he's speaking with authorities, like I'm not making this stuff up, these aren't my own personal words, it's not personal opinion, it's not my made up ideas about God, no, this is God's message about himself that John was being given and he was proclaiming it, that God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. God is light. So, It's important to understand that God is light. To understand the nature of our fellowship with him. Because that's the goal. Remember? To have and be in common. To integrate. And because Jesus is the perfect integration of the physical and the spiritual. If we're to have fellowship with him. Then any contradiction in me. Has to come to the surface. And it has to be dealt with. Any contradiction in me. That's going to hinder this has to surface, and it has to be dealt with. And therefore, if, the, if, if there's a problem in my fellowship with God, a problem in my fellowship with Jesus, that means this, it's my fault. It's not God's fault. Not His fault. He is light, and in Him there is no darkness at all. So any approach to my relationship with Jesus that assumes He's in the wrong, that assumes God's might be in the wrong, and Maybe perhaps, you know, that God needs to be forgiven by us. I mean, that's a blasphemous concept. It contradicts what God tells us here. He is light. There's no darkness in in him at all. You know, the one that we sometimes hear in our culture is this suggestion that, that perhaps God made a mistake. Well, perhaps God made a mistake when he made me. That's like one of the arguments that we're hearing a lot in our culture. And that's actually blasphemous. That's, that's to suggest to say that God is at fault. That God is in error. Well that doesn't add up. God is light. In him there is no darkness at all. And light produces life. Light produces growth and beauty. But sin is darkness. And darkness and light cannot coexist and exist in the same place. And so if we're walking in the light, then darkness has to go. And on the other hand, if we're holding on to sin, if we're holding on to darkness, then light has to go. There's no middle ground, you know. In a relationship with Jesus, no shades of gray. Not even 50. (laughs) No shades of gray. And so here's the question. If there's darkness in my life, I'm a follower of Jesus. He's integrating his spiritual life into my physical life. And if there's some area of darkness in my, in my life, then, then how do we do, deal with that? What do we do with it? What are humans prone to do when they've been walking in darkness? I would say this. Well, actually, what are Christians prone to do? If we've been walking in darkness, then, you know, Sunday comes, and we get ourselves to church, and, and what are we, we prone to do? We, we, well, we pretend, <laughs> We put on the facade. We, uh, well, pretend is a, a weak word because when there is actually, actually physical and spiritual disintegration in our lives, that's called sin. When we don't line up with who Jesus is, how do Christians try to cover up their sins? Well, the answer is this. It's, it's not easy, not a, a nice comfy text for us. Like I said, John's got the ability to drop the hammer. He says this, we lie. Look at verse six if we say that we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. I, I, like I, I told you a couple weeks ago, I just have always found John such a hard book in my quiet, first John in, in my quiet times over the year, because it's just, he doesn't leave much room. And the truth is, you know, humans are apt to say that they have fellowship with God and yet the practice of their lives is, is to continue to walk in darkness. And what John is telling us is that that is not possible. That is not possible because the very nature of God himself is light. So to say such a thing is to lie. And the first lie is that we, that we lie to others. You know wanting to save face. Wanting to appear spiritual, wanting to make a good impression. Of course, we want other people to think that we're walking in the light, even if we've been treading in some darkness. Now, now, actually, let me hold on here for a second, for a moment. Let's be clear on something. The issue John is talking about is not salvation. Okay? The issue he's talking about, what is the goal? The goal is fellowship. The goal is this integration of Jesus with me. The issue is fellowship. And so the reality is, is we know this. You know this. If you've walked with Jesus, then you know that there are times when you can temporarily step into a place of darkness and walk in the midst of darkness. Salvation isn't lost. What's lost or what's broken? Fellowship is broken. Fellowship is broken. So he says in verse 7, But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. So to walk in the light, I would say is this, that that means to walk in the pattern of general obedience. To walk in the pattern of generally obeying the Lord and his word and not harboring sin or resisting the conviction and the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. You know, the truth is, is that perfection, has anybody arrived here? I haven't arrived. <laughs> None of us have. I, my family comes from a Pentecostal holiness background. Did, did, do you know what one of the doctrines was of the Pentecostal holiness movement was this? Uh, I'll tell you this. They said this. The second definite work of grace is, is that you are sanctified. That means perfection. So they taught that as Christians, you could be perfected. Which is wrong. I mean, you read this here and you can see that this is wrong. I mean, perfection on this side of eternity is not possible. But walking in the light is possible. That's not implying perfect obedience. But to me, walking in the light implies progress. It implies direction. It implies continuous action. It implies unity between ourselves and Jesus. So John says God is light so when we walk with him naturally we're in the light and there is fellowship with him and the result is we have fellowship with one another. It's one of the beauties of coming together with the body of Christ. You know two Christians who are in fellowship with Jesus will naturally have fellowship with one another. You'll find that. You find that when you meet people sometimes and you're like wow, there's something here about this. And then you find out, they walk with Jesus. And they're like, I knew there was something different about you. Because there's a fellowship between one another because you're in fellowship with Jesus. We experience that when we come together as the body. And as we walk in the light, John says this, the blood of Jesus cleanses us of all sin. See, we need a continual cleansing of sin because we all continually sin. We all continually fall short of the glory of God. And the cleansing power of the blood of Jesus. It it forgave us when we came to Jesus. The the blood of Jesus did the work uh, for the guilt of sin at salvation. But it's an ongoing work for the rest of your life. The washing of the blood. You know in terms of dealing with the stain of sin. That would get in the way. That would hinder our relationship with God. And so the blood of Jesus cleanses us of all sins. But if we don't have fellowship with one another, then John's conclusion would be this. I would say this. If, if, we don't have, if you and I don't have fellowship, then John's conclusion would be that one or both parties is not walking in the light. You've probably experienced that too, some sort of strained relationship at some point in time with another follower of Jesus. And in those situations, it's easy to conclude that Well, it's the problem lies with them. (laughs) Right? The problem lies with them. You know, if they would just get right with Jesus, then we'd have fellowship with one another. And the tough thing is to discern our own lives. And either you deal with it or you make up lies, he's telling us, here to cover it up. Again, look at verse 8 now. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. And the truth is not in us. It's a crazy thing. But, but humans are, are prone to claiming that they have no sin. Which is the mistake of, of self arrogance. I think it's rooted in a wrong concept of sin. A defective idea of what sin is. And first you know. John talks about this. He says if you, you'll lie to other people. But then he tells us this. You hear that we deceive ourselves when we do the very thing. So it's not just a lie to other people. It's a lie to ourselves. The classic example is King David from the scripture. Remember David? Lust led him to adultery. And and instead of admitting to what he had done and coming clean before the Lord. He tried to cover it up with more sin. Murdered a man. All sorts of actions that he took. And he lied to himself in the midst of it all. He carried on his kingly duties. And finally, finally he was confronted by the prophet Nathan. And then he came clean. But he had been lying to himself. And John says this. That to say that we have no sin is to deceive ourselves. And the truth is not in us. You know, we say things like this. Well, we say, well, we make slight concessions. Well, I'm not perfect well, you know, everybody makes mistakes. I'm only human. We've all used those lines. But those are words of self-defense and excuse that are different from admitting and saying, you know what, Lord, I sinned. I was wrong. I'm a sinner. And forgiveness and victory comes with that confession. Saying, Lord, I sinned against you. I'm a sinner and I'm thankful for a Savior that cleanses me of all my sin. And that brings us to verse 9, which I think is worth committing to memory. It's one of the great verses of the New Testament. Because here's the thing. When this fellowship is broken, what God has done is this. God has provided a, a, a mechanism to fix fellowship. He's provided a solution for the disintegration of spiritual life and physical life, and it's this, it's confession of sin. Look at verse nine. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Look at all the Lord asks is this, that when we sin, all he asks is that we would confess it to him own it you know confession isn't simply to admit you know to just admit wrongdoing it's more than that the word confess actually means this literally to say the same thing about it's to say the same thing about your sin that God says about your sin confession's not praying some flowery you know prayer or making pious excuses trying to you know impress God or other believers true confession is naming sin and calling it by its name lord i was angry and it was wrong jesus it was envy it w- it was lust it was greed it was deceit it was pride whatever it is it's it's being honest with ourselves and honest with god and and If others are involved, it means being honest with them as well. And when we confess, the promise is this, that God promises to forgive. He promises to deal with it. You know, when should we confess? I would say immediately. You know, immediately. Make that the practice of your life, that when the Spirit convicts you. I I read a story as I was reading this week about one time when Spurgeon was crossing the street. He stopped in the middle of the crosswalk. He was walking with someone. The other guy continued to walk across the street and Spurgeon just stopped and he bowed his head in prayer. And his, and his buddy said, what are you doing? <laughs> You're going to get run, you know, horse and buggy days. You're going to get run over by a horse. He said, oh, the spirit of God brought conviction to my heart. I had to stop and deal with it right now. When do we confess sin? Immediately. Proverbs twenty-eight, thirteen says, Whoever conceals his transgression will not prosper, but he who confesses and forsakes them will obtain mercy. Look, you treat God truthfully and God will treat you truthfully. That's what John is telling us. No pretense. Lay your soul bare. Let him see it as it really is. Pour out your heart to him because he's a refuge. And you know the truth is? He already knows anyways. He already knows anyways. And so what it's really about is being honest with ourselves and him. And he says this, I'll be faithful and I'll be just and I will forgive you your sin and I will cleanse you from all unrighteousness. What this is not though is a text that would lead us to this conclusion. You know this argument that comes up in our hearts and minds. It's like, well, I'll just go ahead and sin because I know that God will forgive me later. It's a total common human thing. No, this is grace, and a true understanding of God's grace always leads us away from sin. Knowing that God will be faithful and just to forgive us our sin should should stop us from that action. So now look at verse 10. Look what he goes. He goes here again. If we say we have not sinned, First we lie, remember first it was, first we lie to others, then we lie to ourselves, and now look what he says here in verse 10. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. See to make that statement is to call God a liar. To call God a liar. And this shows the full extent of this claim that we have no sin, such a claim, to, it's to lie to others, it's to lie to ourselves, but worst of all, it's to lie to God. Lie about God. It's a contradiction to his word that says all of sin fall short of the glory of God. There's no exceptions to that rule. We're not the exception to that rule. We apply God's word, often, you know, we do this, we apply God's word to others' people and we don't apply it to ourselves. That's why we could sit sometimes in church week after week, month after month, and hopefully not year after year and not be touched by the word of God. Not let it penetrate our own hearts. And believers who reach that, that point are usually pretty critical of other Christians, critical of churches. And all the while they're strongly resisting the word of God in their own lives. And so what, what John is telling us here in all of this That God is light and there's no darkness in him? He's telling us sin is deadly, man. It's deadly for our relationship with Jesus. And the key is this. Honesty. Honesty, folks. We say, say, oh man, we love it when Christians are authentic. That's kind of like a buzzword in the last 10 years, right? Authentic. Real. Honest. Honesty with others honesty with ourselves, honesty with God. See, this passage is describing to us a dishonest follower of Jesus, a phony. A dishonest life. And the result is is that fellowship's broken. Lost fellowship with God, lost fellowship with God's people. And so again, like verse six, he says, if we say we're without sin, we lie, we do not practice the truth. Verse eight, We say we're without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. Verse 10, we say we're without sin, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. The result, fellowship, koinonia, having things in common with each other and with God, it's broken. And the result is the word of God becomes powerless in our lives. We begin to lose our character because the truth is not in us. And it's no wonder that God says that he who covers his sin will not prosper. When David covered his sin, what happened to David? He lost his health, his family, and he almost lost his kingdom. And so if we want to enjoy life that is real, we never cover it up. Never. BECAUSE THE PROMISE IS, IF WE CONFESS OUR SINS, HE IS FAITHFUL AND JUST AND WILL FORGIVE US OUR SINS, AND PURIFY US FROM ALL UNRIGHTEOUSNESS. THAT BRINGS US TO CHAPTER 2, WE'RE GOING TO DIP INTO IT THIS MORNING, AND and THE WAY THAT IT BEGINS FEELS FATHERLY TO ME, IT'S TENDER, IT'S LIKE PASTORAL, AND I LIKE THAT BECAUSE IT'S LIKE, THE STUFF THAT JOHN'S BEEN SAYING HAS BEEN TOUGH, AND NOW LOOK WHAT HE SAYS, VERSE 1, MY LITTLE CHILDREN, HEAR THE CARE, HE'S LIKE, HE JUST HAMMERED US, MAN. He just like ran me over with the freight train. I'm like, I was telling the team before, I'm like, this text is brutal for me, man. It's just hard. But then he comes tender like this. He says, my little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. I love that. Because straight and truthful as he has been, now comes the tender pastoral care he's not writing to rub dirt in people's faces and bring condemnation he's writing because he cares for the health of God's people and the church and it's the truth that sets us free and we need to hear it and so he says I'm writing you that you may not sin that's his purpose what is he seeking to inspire That God's people may not sin because the truth is, is that we do not have to sin, church. We don't have to. We've been set free from the law of sin and death. We've been set free from that old master. God does not make the believer sin. And his desire is not that we would, is that we would not sin at all. All the resources are made available to us for spiritual victory, right? Right? The scripture tells us, 1 Corinthians ten thirteen: no temptation has seized you except what is common to man. And God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear, but he will also provide a way out so that you can stand up under it. All the resources for spiritual victory are at our disposal. But sometimes weakness comes. You've been walking with Jesus and you've been walking in the light and sometimes, man, like Adam and Eve... In the garden, you just resist and you take control of your, the autonomy of your life and and in independence, you rebel and step into darkness, not rely on Jesus for victory. And so John says this, if that happens, if anyone does sin, we have an advocate. Jesus Christ the righteous. That's awesome. We have an advocate. Jesus Is our defender. Even if we sin now. He's defending us. If we sin. Look if you sin. You're not written out of the Lamb's book of life. Your name is not cast off the list. You're not kicked out of the family. Because you have an advocate. You have a defense attorney. It's as if you're standing. Like just picture this. You know if you were standing. As the accused in the heavenly court. Remember in Zechariah, there's almost a scene like this where Joshua is standing and the the accuser, Satan, is there and he's accusing him? Well, imagine yourself. You're standing in the court of heaven before the righteous judge, God the Father, and your advocate is there, Jesus. And he stands up to answer the charges and he points to you and he says, He's totally guilty. Matt is totally guilty, your honor. In fact, he's done worse than he's being accused of. And your advocate, my advocate, stands there and he makes a full confession of the sin against God. And down comes the gavel. The judge says, what's the sentence? And your advocate speaks up your defense attorney. And he says, the sentence is death. Death. He deserves the full wrath of this righteous court. And your accuser, you got an advocate and you got an accuser. Your accuser, Satan, is there and he's like doing fist pumps because you've been condemned. Because the truth is we are, we are guilty. We are to admit our guilt. We, we, we're to know our punishment. But then our advocate approaches the bench and he comes up to the judge and he draws close and he, and he simply says this, Dad, Father, this one belongs to me. I paid the price. I took the wrath and the punishment that he deserves. And the gavel comes down again, crack. And the judge cries out, guilty as charge, penalty satisfied. Debt paid. And the accuser goes nuts, right? What? Put him on probation, you know? Give him an ankle bracelet. Whatever, house arrest. Put him on the chain gang. Make him earn it. Make him earn it. And no, shouts the judge, the penalty is completely paid by my son Jesus. There's nothing There's no probation. And then the father, the the judge, turns to the advocate, the defense lawyer, Jesus, and says, son, this one belongs to you. They're, They're yours. I release this man or woman into your care. See, we have an advocate. John wants us to know. Jesus is at the right hand of the father. What is he doing right now? He's pleading for us. He's advocating for us. He's praying for us. You know, we often think, we have this conversation about sin this morning and we often tend to think that our sin sets God against us. That God is against us. But God's great love is so great that he went to the ultimate measure to make us able to stand in the midst of his holiness. And it's through his son Jesus. His death on the cross. And God, and because of, because of Jesus, God can be for us even when we're guilty sinners. John says he's Jesus Christ the righteous. Jesus Christ the righteous. That means Jesus is fully qualified to serve as your advocate because there's no sin in him. He's righteous. He's sinlessly perfect. Verse 2 says this, he is the propitiation for our sins. And not for ours only, but for all, also for the sins of the whole world. He is the propitiation for our sins. This is a big word, propitiation. <coughs> it simply means this, that Jesus is the one who atones for and takes away our sins. Not only our sins, John says, but the sins of the entire world are taken away in him. Isn't that amazing? And this word propitiation implies that, that, that Jesus, as our sin offering, has reconciled God and us by nothing else except the work of the cross and, and his very life, his shed blood on that cross. And he, is a, he has set us free from the wrath of God. He bore it in himself. And through Jesus and the propitiation that he made, he made it for the whole world. That's incredible to think about this. The whole world, there's not one sin ever that Jesus wasn't tried for on that cross. And yet the truth is, we look at our world and what do we see? Are, is everyone saved from sin? No. It's not. This isn't like the, the message of universalism that's like, yeah, Jesus, everyone gets in. No, what John is telling us is that the provision of the cross, it's universal in its nature. It covers every sin. But we cannot equate that as being universal in its application. The work of the cross has to be applied to our lives as individuals. An application of the work of the cross happens when we come to Jesus, we confess our sin, and we ask for that forgiveness. This is why, you know, I would say this, people, people need to hear about Jesus. They need to hear about Jesus. Jesus. So that they can apply that which is made available to them. The forgiveness of sin. And have fellowship with him. John just talks about the fruit of fellowship. Check it out. Verse 3 to 6. We'll wrap up here. And by this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commands. Whoever says I know him but does not keep his commandments is a liar and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word in him truly the love of God is perfected by this we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way that he walked. So the evidence, the evidence of knowing God and fellowship with him is this, that we keep his commands. Jesus said this, he said to his disciples, he says, if you love me, you will obey what I say. You will do as I say. John says, whoever says that I know him but does not keep his commands is a liar and the truth is not in him. The the truth of this is so certain. This is so clear here that if one does not live a mark life, a a life marked by obedience, a, a claim to having fellowship with God through Jesus I think can be challenged. It's like you have fellowship with Jesus but like look at all of this disobedience. See, there's a difference between knowing God and knowing about God. And we're called to know him, to walk with him, integration of his life into ours, obedience. Verse 5 again, but whoever keeps his word in him, truly the love of God is perfected. By this we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. And so John connects for us obedience to love. Our obedience to the word of God, to our love for Jesus. A perfected love or a growing love is going to demonstrate itself in obedience. An increased obedience to the word of God. Obedience to the word and love for Jesus um, will do this. It will give you assurance in your salvation. You go, out, oh, man. I got I got so many areas of disobedience, but I always think this. I go, man, you know. I I haven't I haven't noticed from day to day. I don't notice many changes, you know, in myself when I look in the mirror. But then every once in a while, you know, on the computer, some, you know, our family photos will pop up, and I'll go, wow, I'm looking old. Wow, I got less hair than I, you know. Change happens day after day after day, and sometimes. We, we can't see it, and we can't recognize it, but, you know, think about your relationship with Jesus. Have you grown since last year? Has he changed you in the last five years? 20? 20 years? Is, is there increased obedience as you grow and walk with him? And that, that recognition of seeing the change that his spirit is doing in you should bring in a... Uh, An assurance of that sense that you belong to him. And so in all this conversation about sin. I would say this. That when someone becomes a follower of Jesus. A Christian. There will be 100% a change in their relationship to sin. Not that sin will be eliminated. That doesn't happen until we're in glory. But our relationship with sin is changed when we come into relationship with Jesus. A Christian no longer loves sin the way they once did. A Christian no longer brags about their sin the way they once did. A Christian no longer plans sin in the same way that they used to. A Christian no longer fondly remembers sin From the past, a Christian never fully enjoys sin as they once did. A Christian is not comfortable in areas of habitual sin as he once was. The Christian no longer loves sin. We gotta hate our sin. And when we are abiding in Jesus, walking as he walked, the general pattern of our lives being this direction of obedience and growing in love. If you walk, if you want to walk just as he he walked, you need to abide in him. That's what John said. You know one of the, the great scripture verses that I love and often remind people of when we're having conversations. I said this. You know, the difference between a righteous man and an unrighteous man is that a righteous man gets up when he falls down. Here's how you get up Lord, I confess it. I lay it before you again. I bring it to you, Jesus. Would you forgive me? It was sin. And I'm asking you to forgive me and to change this in me. The spiritual power evident in the life of Jesus uh, flows into our lives from just faithful, regular, disciplined life of fellowship. Look, that's what I want to leave you with, church. That's what you need. Just a life of fellowship. Cultivate the life of fellowship with Jesus. Abide in him. You know, if I leave you with just a couple thoughts as we close, man, no pretense with the Lord. He's not fooled. He's not fooled. You know, you can fool me, I can fool you, we can fool ourselves, but the Lord is never fooled. And so just be honest with Him. Be honest with Him. He's provided the mechanism to fix it. Come to Him and confess it. He'll be faithful. He'll be just. He's your advocate. He is Jesus Christ, the righteous, your propitiation. He's done it. He wants relationship with you. Bring it to him and lay it down. And he'll be faithful and just and he will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. I'm going to invite the worship team to come. Would you guys stand with me?